My top tip for supporting parents is to think about end of the day flexibility. For a lot of parents, that's a really difficult time. They're trying to get home, they're trying to see their kids, they're trying to get dinner on the table, they're trying to do bedtime. Having a little flexibility built in at the end of the day is going to make the workplace a lot more family friendly. That's Emily Oster, PhD in economics and professor at Brown University, where her work focuses on health economics and statistical methods. She's written three books on data-driven parenting that synthesize available evidence to help parents make better decisions for themselves. Expecting Better covers pregnancy, Crib Sheet goes from birth through preschool, and The Family Firm is for the early school years. She's also the author of articles appearing in publications like The Atlantic, The New York Times, and 538, offering insights on navigating parenthood that are relevant both personally and professionally. I'm Luann Heinen, and this is the Business Group on Health podcast, conversations with experts on the most important health and well-being issues facing employers. My guest is Emily Oster, and we'll be talking about The Economist's case for a family-inclusive workplace and childhood vaccination. Hi, Emily. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me. So glad you're here today. And we're going to talk about a lot of fun things with personal and professional relevance, I think, to many of us. Let's start out talking about where we are right now in the employer space. Companies are laser focused on retaining employees. I mean, women in particular have been exiting the workforce, something like 2 million since the start of the pandemic. And since well before the pandemic, Large companies have been expanding their paid parental leave benefits, doing things to support a family-friendly workplace. But your expertise is evidence. Let's talk about the data and what it says when it comes to, first, how much leave parents need around birth or adoption. So to look at that in the data, I think there's really two pieces of, of evidence I would I would draw on. So the first is evidence from the U.S. where we can look at what happens when we go from zero to something like six weeks. And you can do that using the FMLA, Family Medical Leave Act, and looking at what happens when we expanded coverage for the ability to take some time off for new parents. And when you look at that, it becomes very clear why it's so important to have at least that amount of leave, because we see all kinds of good impacts coming out of that, including improvements in infant health, including improvements in breastfeeding, including actually in many cases, in some cases, reductions in infant mortality. So very significant positive effects of that sort of first six-week period. And then when we sort of go a little bit beyond that, we're still seeing some impacts. We're still seeing sort of as we go to three or four months that in other studies, you can see some data there. When places move by places, I mean other countries that are not the U.S., to increase leave from, say, four months to a year, we aren't seeing enormous impacts of that. So in a sense, there's kind of a coalescing around the idea that something around 12 weeks or 16 weeks is a way to get a lot of those initial benefits, but that you probably wouldn't need to go to a full year to get some of those benefits. And I think that there's disagreement about this, but there's some potential costs to that long out of the workforce in terms of employer incentives to hire women. And so those issues become more complicated. Yeah. What we've seen in our own data is that, and this is, again, a not a representative sample of all employers, but the large employers, about a third of our members offer 12 weeks or more and 40% in the six to 11 week category. And then about a quarter are offering five weeks or less. And that varies quite a bit by industry sector and uh, market benchmarks. Yeah, that sounds sort of very consistent with what we see. I mean, in general, when we look in the data, we see that, you know, firms that have larger shares of, say, 
white collar workers uh, tend to offer more leave. And to your point about kind of variability and global leave, we've looked at data from around the world and many countries, um, middle and higher economic countries require paid parental leave from 10 weeks in Mexico to something like 14 months in South Korea and, and even more in some Eastern European countries. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. is a very significant outlier on this. To mention, um, we are the only developed country and, in fact, almost the only country that does not offer some kind of paid parental leave. Um, I think, you know, many of us were really disappointed this week when it seems like that provision is going to come out of the one of the bills that's on the table at the mm-hmm. moment. That was very disappointing. Saw that on your Twitter account. That was very, I mean, I, I was interesting for me because I, this is something I sort of think about academically all the time. And when I saw that, I just had this moment of just being sad. And it was very, actually very surprising because it's not often a way that I sort of feel in that setting, but just to see a piece of information like that and just think, wow, like I'm, I'm mad. Yes. But I'm also just like tremendously sad that that seems like it's not, it's not going to happen when it's so obviously should You know, and after leave, the initial leave, um, there's that critical period after parents return to the office. And what, at that point, does a family-friendly culture look like? I think it's actually a very important part of this discussion because even for firms that have very good leave policies, and by good, I mean, you know, generous and thoughtful and allowing people to really have the time and whatever, I think we sometimes have the instinct that it's like, okay, I gave you your 12 weeks and now you're just going to be back and it's going to be exactly the same. And for anybody who has kids, you know, I like I remember before I had kids, I think I had some of the same, like, okay, like when they're little babies, it'll be a lot of work, but then like, won't you know, won't be so much work anymore after that. Um, that was, of course, entirely wrong. You know, my kids are six and 10 and there's still a fair amount of navigation of my work life and sort of making it fit with the kind of parenting that I want to do. And so I think that there's a lot that can be done in firms that starts with recognizing that becoming a parent is a long-term activity and that when people come back in four months, they're still going to be breastfeeding and all this other kind of stuff. But even in, you know, when we think about people who have kids who are like, you know, toddlers or early school age, there's a lot of time that is taken up by that and and some constraints that are delivered. And I think that, um, you know, there's a value to certain types of flexibility, recognition that, you know, people may need that kind of flexibility to make, at least in, in a sort of particular period of their work life, in order to make it work to kind of operate at a high level and also manage uh, having having a family. And I think the first step is really to recognize that, you know, parenting does not end at 12 weeks. And then the second is to think about, you know, in the particular setting that you're in, what is the kind of scaffolding that you can put in place to make that possible? Yeah. So why do you say that, quote, our culture tells us work and parenting are at odds? And also speak a little bit about what you've called secret parenting. Yeah. So uh- it's sort of very interesting because I I, ta- I started talking about this idea of secret parenting, you know, pre-pandemic and talking about the idea that, you know, we sometimes have a sort of sense that your kids are something to be hidden at work. And in fact, you can see this in surveys with people who say, well, I lied and told my boss that I needed to go to the doctor because I didn't want to tell them they had to make, take my kid to the doctor. So this is an invisible part of your life. And I think that makes it very difficult to think about what kinds of flexibility are necessary. The point I was making in that piece was that if we want to move forward in these dimensions, if we want to make it more possible to generate the kinds of flexibility that people need, that we need to make parenting visible. And that in some ways that really has to start at the top, right? So you cannot expect the most junior people 
to be willing to be the ones who stand up and say, oh, hey, you know, I need to leave at five o'clock because it's important to me to have dinner with my kids. But, you know, when you're at the top, when you've made it, when you're the boss, you do have the opportunity to say that. And when people are able to say that, when people are able to sort of put their authentic selves in or their parenting out there in the world, that's a way for junior people to see that modeled. And so, you know, I, I think that's very, very important. Sort of interesting to think about in the context of the of the pandemic, because of course, you know, a year after I wrote that, then all of a sudden we were kind of all parenting in public in this very, like very odd way where, you know, we're all zooming from our houses and everybody saw each other's beds and all kinds of other, uh, it was like very difficult to be um, not secret. I think in some ways, like that's a good push for this, um, but only if we use it as such. To that point, are there signposts that are hallmarks of a family-friendly culture, whether you're in the office or on Zoom, that you'd point to? I mean, I think in the office, it's pictures, right? So how do you make it visible that you're like a parent? I'm like looking around at my walls and they're like covered in terrible art projects from my (laughs) my children. You know, like that's one thing. That's sort of one very visible outward thing. I think the other thing is people being honest when the thing that they need to do involves their kid that, you know, I need to leave early because my kid has a baseball game or like, I'm going to take this time to like go volunteer my kid's school, whatever it is when you do those things. And I think many people who are in positions of authority do do some of those things to just think, to say them, to think, to say, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I'm going to be out for this hour. This is why I'm going to be leaving earlier. I'm going to, you know, and that is the visibility. Even those of us who do a lot of that, we don't think to advertise it, not because we're embarrassed about it, just because it's like, I, you know, well, why do people need to know that? But I think the point is maybe people do need to know that. Uh, great point. And I imagine that it's particularly powerful when it's leaders, managers, men who are, you know, taking those, being visible in, that, in those ways. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think that there's an onus in some ways on both genders. It is particularly powerful when men do it. I also think in some ways it's much easier for men to do it because I think that you experience much less of the sort of judgment that sometimes comes with this. So I think, you know, we just, I mean, it's like this sort of old trope of like when you see a, a dad with a baby on an airplane, people are like, oh, what a great dad. And then when you see a mom with a baby on the airplane, you're like, ah. Oh, I hope she's not sitting next to me. You know, it's like, I think it is this sort of same thing. Like if people say like, I'm leaving to go to my son's baseball game or my, you know, daughter's field hockey game or whatever, people are like, oh, what a great involved dad. And if moms (laughs) goes like, yep, don't care about your job. And so I think in that sense, it's actually the modeling by dads is important, um, but it's important for different reasons. And I, I do think it shouldn't be the case, but I think there is an onus on senior women to do that kind of modeling too. And I actually think it's quite hard because if you have come up in a culture in which this is hidden, and so then to take the step and be like, okay, now I made it, and I need to make it visible that I made it, even though I had kids, that's a hard, yeah. like, emotional step to take. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting, because when I had my kids, there weren't any notable family-friendly benefits or practices. <laughs> and, you know, today, in our survey, 78% of our members, our large employers, offer flexible work hours, 46% offer backup childcare, over 40% access to tutors and or a stipend for tutoring services. I mean, they're shipping breast milk to you know women who are traveling and it goes on and on. Do you have any particular family-friendly benefits or practices that you 
think there's a good evidence base for that are more important than others? I think we don't have a lot of evidence on this sort of specifics besides things like paid leave. I think it depends a lot on the kind of characteristics of your of your workforce and the characteristics of your local market. So for example, for a lot of people, on-site childcare is really central. That's going to be particularly important if you're in a place where childcare is difficult to procure. Right? Unfortunately, we have like a tremendously significant childcare desert in the US and it's very difficult for people to find high quality yeah. convenient affordable childcare mm-hmm. options mm-hmm. and that's going to be more of an issue in some places than others and so i can imagine that being very important i think in some sense the answer to this question is just as a firm you kind of need to figure out what the people that are working for you mm-hmm. need and they're not and that's there's going to be a lot of heterogeneity in that and navigation for childcare services and you know referral services and that kind of thing is another benefit i didn't mention but it's very commonly offered as well yeah exactly the other piece of it is like backup care right but again i you know i think backup care is an example of something where I think that people overvalue it. Companies think it's more important than it is. Because if you sort of think about what are people using backup care for? Well, so you're using backup care when your kid's sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. But like when my kid's sick, they don't just want somebody to show up in the house. Like in a pinch, if I had to do something. Mm-hmm we could work that out. But like, that's really not the top of my list for how to sort of trusting somebody that I've never met before with a kid who is not feeling well. I think for many parents, that's not a very appealing option. And it's a sort of argument for, okay, well, what what are the kinds of flexibility you could give that would make people be able to deal with that? Maybe backup care seems like a good idea, but actually isn't sort of mm-hmm. all that it's mm-hmm. up to me. One thing I found super interesting is that well before COVID-19, you were writing about the data-informed case for vaccines in kids. What got you interested in that? I'm looking at a 538 article from like 2014. You know, I got very interested in studying vaccines for kids when I was working on parenting. So a lot of my early work, sort of pre-COVID work, both my academic work and especially my public facing stuff is sort of much more in the space of just like questions about about parenting. I think for some people, you know, thinking about childhood vaccines broadly is something that is a source of controversy. It's also just like, frankly, a very interesting research space to understand, you know, how do we get to a point where people are afraid of the measles vaccine? How do we get there and how do we get out of it? And so I've done a variety of kinds of work on, you know, what prompts people to get vaccinations when they haven't been vaccinated Mm -hmm. or how can we understand the demographics of vaccine resistance, all again, sort of like pre-COVID. Okay. So it's interesting to me that, I mean, one of the things you're known for in your parenting books is giving kind of empowering parents to make the best decisions for them. But when it comes to vaccination, there's a general consensus and certainly among the pediatric physician community and so on public health that it's really important to aim for 100% vaccination in children. Do you agree with that? And do you think that applies to the COVID vaccine as well? Let's talk about the regular vaccines first, and then I would talk about about COVID. So, um, so, you know, broadly, yes, I think that if we sort of dig into like, are there good reasons not to give your kid the measles vaccine or pertussis vaccine or something like that? There are not good reasons for that. Um, To do that, you know, those vaccines have been around for an extremely long time. They have been very widely used. And more importantly, there are good reasons to give your kids those vaccines and to make sure that we have high vaccination rates. I think a good illustration of that is, you know, in 2015, there was a measles outbreak at Disneyland. You know, somebody came from another country. They had measles. Okay. Measles vaccines are super effective. They have basically sterilizing immunity, which means if you're vaccinated, it's not just that you can't get sick. You like, you just can't get it. But measles is also extremely contagious. 
it can live on surfaces for hours and hours and hours. And so somebody had came to Disneyland and they had measles and a bunch of people got measles and they got measles because they were not vaccinated. That was a very strong example of like why everybody should be vaccinated for measles and why your kids should be vaccinated for measles. It's so they don't get measles, a disease which largely affects children. For all of those things, there's kind of like, there's no reason not to do it. And there's a good reason to do it because these are diseases that affect kids. And, you know, one of the things we've seen in, I saw in some of my research is, you know, when you have a local death from pertussis, so pertussis whooping cough, it's a vaccine preventable disease, but, you know, some people are not vaccinated every year. It's maybe two dozen infants die of, of whooping cough. When you have cases of deaths from that in your area, it prompts more vaccination in the following year. So it does sort of look like that feeds back there. Yeah. So I saw a data point that one in four children are not getting all the recommended shots for the seven infectious disease vaccines, which is you know all the ones you get before age three, MMR, DPT, polio, chickenpox. How is that trending? That is trending down, at least at the in the most recent year. Um, so I think one of the very unfortunate aspects of the pandemic was a dramatic drop in well-child visits and as a result, a big drop in these routine vaccines. And so I think we're seeing a big change in that, which is not good. No. So if we're not in a good place on those generally widely accepted childhood vaccinations, then how concerned are you about the COVID-19? I mean, I think the COVID-19 vaccine is a total, I think parents are thinking of as a completely different decision. You know, I think that that's not quite right, but I can see why people are processing it differently. I mean, it's newer. So, you know, this isn't the measles vaccine, which has been around for a long time. It's a new vaccine. Now, it has been given to billions of people. So it's not like it's totally untested, but it is newer. And, you know, this will be kind of the first wave of kids that get vaccinated. I think the other issue, you know, that's come up is that COVID, we are lucky that it has not affected kids anywhere close to the rates that it's affecting older adults. The age gradient is really, really striking. But that means that, you know, for a lot of parents, they sort of look at this and they say, you know, well, I'm going to vaccinate my kid. I'm going to give my kid the COVID vaccine, but like, why? So those sort of personal benefits to doing this are relatively small, even if, you know, the kind of broader societal benefits may be, be reasonable. And so I think that personal cost benefit is going to give a lot of parents pause. I mean, do you have any thoughts as to what works best to increase vaccination rates between you know winning over hearts, winning over minds, passing laws? So I think there's sort of two big categories of this that I would say. So I think on the one hand, I hope that as we kind of come into this initial COVID vaccine, the way that this is likely to play out is there are a bunch of people who are like chomping at the bit to vaccinate their kids. For example, I'm dying to vaccinate my kids. And every day my husband is like, did you text the doctor about when we can get an appointment? I'm like, they're not approved yet. Um, He's like, I want one in advance. So, you know, there's many people who are going to do this. And within the first few weeks of this, I think we'll see, you know, millions of childhood vaccines. And then there are some people who are staunchly opposed. And I think that, you know, we can talk about how we're going to reach those people later. And then there's a bunch of people in the middle who I think have some feeling like, well, I'm not exactly sure about this. I feel like I need to see more information. And I hope that the way that we can frame this decision for that group is to sort of ask them to think about, you know, do you want to vaccinate your kid now or do you want to discuss it again in a few weeks? Because if you sort of get people into a decision frame of like, do you want to vaccinate now or not? Then if they choose not, then they may sort of continue in the decision of not. 
So I think it's really, really important to keep open. Maybe you might think you need more information, but let's make sure we have a plan to revisit this in a few weeks because by then, you know, millions and millions of kids will have been vaccinated and maybe you will feel differently. So I think that's like the first step is to kind of be a little patient, do a little like on the ground at pediatrics offices, talking to families about, you know, what we're seeing and why it's a good idea and and whatever. And then I think there's going to be a sort of stick aspect of this later, which is, you know, we are going to see school mandates, I think, but probably not until next fall. Is there any particular role for employers? I mean, the Edelman Trust Barometer is reporting higher levels of trust in employers compared to government and the media, not, however, pediatricians. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, employers, um, you know, employers play a role in um, probably more in, in sort of education. And, and you know, I think, like, for example, my employer spends a fair amount of time offering like webinars with experts. And I think that that um, sort of that kind of employer sponsored activity probably has some value, particularly if people are kind of questioning, um, you know, sort of qu- questioning the uh, w- what exactly they should do and how they should think about these decisions. Great. Thank you so much for that. Really helpful. So starting in pregnancy, you've pointed out that new parents get a lot of advice, you know, from family, from friends, from doctors, and, and, you know, even people on the street. And a lot of that is based on personal experience and anecdotal information. So if you're up for it, let's play a game. Okay. Game. (laughs) I love it. What is the data tell us? And I'll throw out the first one to get us going. It's a little bit of a hot potato. Alcohol during pregnancy. So it's very clear that um, excessive alcohol consumption, that drinking a lot during pregnancy is very, um, can be, can be very damaging um, to the, to the infant. And I think that's, that's very well understood. Um, But when I wrote Expecting Better, I I sort of dug into like, what about occasional drinking? What about sort of having a glass of wine uh, every now and then, which is much more common in places outside of the U.S.? Um, When you look on the, at the data on that, there really isn't much evidence that that has negative impacts on, um, that have negative impacts on infants, even when you dig into the, or on kids, even when you dig into the, into sort of pretty extensive, large data sets, much of which come out of Europe. How about sleep training your baby? Sleep training your baby. Um, so the first thing to say is that sleep training, which is letting your baby cry and helping them learn to fall asleep on their own, doesn't have negative impacts on infants. It doesn't make them less attached or have any sort of long-term impacts that are that are observed. Um, it does uh, tend to improve infant sleep and also tends to improve parent sleep. And I think an important thing to uh, to note there is that actually when you know we study the impacts of these kind of sleep training activities, one of the things that's really heavily impacted is parental depression um, and marital satisfaction and the kinds of things that come uh, if you are sleeping. Screen time limits. The data on screen time does not suggest that there's anything particularly wrong with screen time. So I really encourage parents to think about screen time not as something that's either good or bad or, you know, has a lot of emotional valence, but as a kind of part of a normal, healthy life that also needs some limits. That if you are watching TV, you're not doing something else. And so if your kid is watching TV for eight hours a day, then that doesn't leave very much time for going outside or playing soccer or going to school or or anything else. And so there's a lot of value in thinking about what is a good time for screen time, um, recognizing that it's probably not never, and it's also probably not always. Uh, and that that's really the way to frame it rather than the idea that somehow screen time is inherently bad, but it's something we have to suffer through because our kids whine too much. That in fact, screen time is a, a normal part of a healthy life, but not an infinite amount. 
So just a little editorial aside, where did all these parenting rules come from then? I mean, I think that the sort of parenting rules, sometimes they come from just like flawed interpretations of studies or really excessive caution. So I think there's sometimes, particularly around some of the stuff in pregnancy, there's a sort of attitude of like, well, you know, we could never be sure if the, the following thing was safe. And so just out of an abundance of caution, let's tell people to do nothing. I also think when we're talking about the parenting stuff, there's this like almost a sort of virtue signaling aspect of uh, some yeah. of these mm. decisions where it's like, you know, the truth is that screen time makes our lives easier. It's just the way it is. Like it's much nicer at the end of my day that like I have a little bit of like like empty space to cook dinner without people screaming at me because they're watching TV. And I will like admit that part of the reason we have it at that time is because that makes the lives of the adults easier. And I think there is a part of parenting sometimes where people are like, well, I wouldn't, you know, that's just because you're not really willing to engage with your kids, but I engage with my kids. I wouldn't let them watch screens because of how I love to engage with them. But there's a piece that sort of feels like that. You know, I'm like by suffering, I'm showing that I I'm showing my love. I'm feeling so much better about my parenting so many years ago. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You don't need to suffer. Okay. The finale. And the one we're all waiting for, what about the impact on kids of two working parents? What's the data say? So the data says it doesn't really matter for your kid uh, whether both of you work or one of you works. There's reasons to have jobs like to generate money. But in terms of the question of, you know, if I had the choice, is my kid going to be better off if they have a stay-at-home parent versus having two working parents? You know, there isn't really anything in the data that would suggest that that matters for the things we can measure, which are things like test scores and health and so on. And so we're just we're just not seeing um, we're just not seeing much evidence that that matters in either direction, um, which it, I think is in some ways, like for me, quite freeing, because I think it really says, okay, like there are a lot of complicated things in the decision of whether to work and how much and they involve finances and what whether you want to, to work and whether you like your job and and so on. But taking this one off the table and just saying, you know what, like there are ways to make this work with your kids. It's not really going to matter either way. This should really be about kind of what is going to work for the the whole family or for the adults in the family, not about somehow like we have to do this to invest in making the best kids. Yeah, excellent. I did really love, I mean, just the concept of the family, how you framed it um, in the family firm that you think about everybody in the family, sustainable way. <laughs> yeah. And I think it is a sort of sustain. I think sometimes we have this idea like, okay, my, like, like I would do anything for my kids. And like, I would do anything for my kids if they needed it. <laughs> but like, if they don't need it, then maybe I'll sometimes do things for myself. <laughs> okay. Is there something you wish you'd done differently returning to, uh, to work as a new parent? Anything to share? I mean, I think that, you know, with my first kid, I think I came back before I was ready. I have a sort of unusual type of job where my time is very flexible. And so it was both possible to take more time and also possible to take less time. And I think that, you know, for the purposes of kind of not wanting to seem I was shirking or that I was going to be some like lady who only was with their kids, I think I came back to work sooner than I should have. Um, And I, I sort of had to go back to tell my my past self that I would probably tell her, like, you're going to get fired from this job anyway, so you might as well take more maternity leave. <laughs> no, that's certainly not the case, looking at your record. Uh, thank you so much for your time today, Emily. This is wonderful. I love talking to you. Um, I think it's going to be uh, great for our audience to hear your perspective. Oh, it was really a treat. Thank you so much.
I've been speaking with Emily Oster about data-driven parenting. Her most recent book is The Family Firm, and you can find her newsletter archive at emilyoster.substack.com. It parses the latest data on pregnancy, parenting, and COVID-19. I'm Luann Heinen. This podcast is produced by Business Group on Health with Connected Social Media. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and like what you heard, please rate us today and leave a review.